shallow words bring nothing new. Shallow words bring nothing new. It cuts out. Hi, everybody. We are really excited to have our first ever guest, which is Natty from Twitter, uh, <laughs> whose uh, who's real name for the purpose of this episode is uh, Natalie Smith. We met Natty from Twitter. <laughs> Hi, Natty. How are you doing? Hey, good. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> Pretty good. This is a great example of uh, if you become a fan of our podcast, we might have you on the podcast. So just this encouragement, uh, be our fans. Yeah, this is how you move up in, in the world is just uh, being a groupie. It's as easy as saying a single nice thing to us. <laughs> the invitation will come in. You can be a co-host. <laughs> But yeah, we wanted to do an episode this week on on defunding police and on the urban uprisings that are happening in the United States. But this being superstructure, we wanted to try to address this analogically by analogy and by comparison to some other uh, things that are happening in the world right now. And it struck us that our friend Natalie lives in Santiago, Chile, and uh, was there for the uprisings that were happening last year. Martial law is obviously in Chile, a very recent historical memory. So I was wondering if, yeah, you could just, you know, give us a, a little bit of a background of what happened last year and sort of how it's been watching what's happening in the United States from afar. Yeah, totally. So uh, last year, everything, there had been things going on all year in Chile. I mean, it's kind of like a country that really pops off and is protesting constantly because you have Santiago really centralized. But in October, you had, um, they started a fair evasion of the metro because they raised it like 30 pesos. And especially the students started it because you have like a long history of student movements in Chile and they had been kind of fighting all year because the conservative government, Piñera, had like, they had put in, what is it, like, Ley de Sala Segura, but they had like been policing the schools really heavily, and there were like a lot of battles at the schools, and there were also teacher strikes in the streets, whatever, so they were mobilized. And then October, so yeah, like at first it started slow, but then it got going, and like the end of that week, there were, like, people taking, like, pushing down the gates to metros, like, and then Friday, like, they were tear gassing inside metros, and then Friday night, like, uh, like, things, like, started burning, a bit, like, a lot of metros were burning, and then that's when, like, the next day they put on, yeah, like, martial law, curfew, all the stuff that's going on in the U.S. right now. It seems like in Chile and in Santiago in particular... A lot of these urban uprisings uh, seem to be about the subway system. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on like what that means and represents to people in the context of the authoritarian martial law and what it meant before that and kind of all that. So there's a really interesting history with transportation that, you know, I think probably tracks with a lot of global South cities because, yeah, you have more buses, 40s, 50s, but then in the... And there's different riots against price rises. You have all through the 20th century, you know, in Chile, some conservative, really conservative regimes, like there's Ibanez in the 20s, and, uh, there, and then there's also like some left ones. There's all this back and forth all those years. And then in the 60s, like internationally, there's a lot of 
metro systems being developed, and uh, the 60s is when you have sort of a center-left reformer, Frey, Frey Montalva, and he's, it's an interesting time, too, because it's kind of when there's, like, Alliance for Progress is, like, trying to do this kind of, like, don't go commie, left lib thing, but there also are a lot of, like, real social development that gets uh, starts under Frey Montalva, even, like, starting agrarian reform, and that's when the metro starts getting built right and the original idea is kind of for the subway to be more for the middle class working class yada yada and so under Montalva and then continuing during Allende it's all being built right so that's 70 to 73 and they're trying to like serve more working class neighborhoods etc but then you know obviously Pinochet comes to power in 73 and they are doing a lot of things like deregulating denationalizing i don't know but like the healthcare system right. the, i don't i don't know if they till later privatized the like they made later a state corporation but anyway the metro opens in 75 mm-hmm. and under Pinochet it really changes in a lot of ways but Pinochet kind of saw it as like a symbol of modernization. It became more middle class and less working class. And yet at the same time over the years, like it's complicated because a lot of people had been moved out of like the city center, you know, during Frey Montalva and again, that you had, of course, like a lot of urban land occupations more centrally, but Pinochet cleared all those out. And so the city grew very horizontally and like outwards. Right. And so over time, those have gotten more subways, but it used to be during Pinochet, those people mostly took the bus. Right. And that's like a whole other thing, because the bus system was like this Wild West, and then the Metro was the symbol of neoliberalism, yada yada, but it was not, because it was also, because Pinochet himself has these, they're not just pure neoliberal, right? Like, you have, in the 70s, like, yeah, you have, like, Friedman come in and all those, and like, they kept Codelco, the copper, but... But then in 82, you have, like, a big um, crash in Chile, and they actually make everything more, uh, like, they, they regulate again more. Like, it beca- like there was a joke I was reading, like, in 80s Santiago that was, like, uh, the Chicago road to socialism. <laughs> 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 it's a joke, but it's, but, and that's what it, but it's uh, complicated, but yeah. It kind of reminds me of that, you know, like, socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor, right? Where, like, everything needs to be more like a market, except for this subway system, which is just going to be this kind of beautiful state corporation for the rich. But the buses are going to be, like... Before this call, you had a really funny joke about the buses being, like, literally in competition with each other on the road. That's what people tell me. (laughs) That's what people tell me, and they miss it so much. Because you had in the aughts during, like, Lago, Speciale, like, the center left, where they, like... uh, They integrated the whole system. That's, like, an crucial thing to know. But... Yeah, so be, and that, because that like instantly doubled the metro's traffic because they did it where it's like, you know, you're on a card and all your trips are like coordinated between the bus. And it used to be like the buses, people were like, yeah, I could get on any bus like in the city and it would eventually get me where I'm going because it would just go in circles around the whole town. So it might be three hours, but I'll get there. And I'm like, that's a horrible nightmare system. But, and like, <laughs> And they would, they would be, like, they kind of were, like, colorful, and they'd be driving fast on, like, the main roads and all this stuff. And, yeah, people tell me it's, like, the Wild West kind of rugged individualism of this, yeah. <laughs> it is interesting how, like, liberalism enters the your daily life in, like, different registers. I don't know. Yeah, it, something I think we wanted to focus on in 
the way like we're posing the comparison between our current moment and then this recent moment in Chile, it seems like the Metro sort of functioned, as you suggested, Natalie, as this sort of site of both a sort of material representation of the sort of neoliberal order in its stratified self, but also importantly, a crucial sort of symbolic operator in this process is like not just like actually weeding out this sort of working class from this sort of professional class but also as a sort of identity uh forming uh structure in in this sort of neoliberal bastion if you'll call it in the global south does that does that seem right to you totally but yeah totally and it's interesting how these identity is schizophrenic because they're all are all these other historical layers within it, right? Like, Pinochet didn't in any way, like, initiate the metro, right? I mean, that's like... (laughs) Right? Like, but it opens in 75, right? So you've had all the... It was started in the 60s into the 70s that they're building it, but then it opens under Pinochet, and it's interesting how you can take that symbol and change it into something else, you know? And it's interesting, too, because I first got to Chile in 2010, and so the uh, Trans-Santiago, like the merging of the, the modernization of the buses and the merging with the metro system, like that was already how that happened in the aughts. Mm-hmm. But people were still mad about it. But uh, it's very much like uh, the metro is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty good metro. Like they come a lot. Like the problem is like in the periphery, it doesn't branch out as much as you need it. Like it still has those class issues within it but but they're built but they're it still goes to the periphery it's just the problem is you need to like do three legs like you got to take this bus to this bus to the metro and then it's just like it can be so crowded and so i think too it's also like you know after pinochet in the 90s and 2000s you know it was sort of this like neoliberal moment where it was democracy, but you still have in the 90s Pinochet is still like senator for life, you know, right. <laughs> and um, it was still like the neoliberal consensus, even with in like the center left coalition. But it, there's still something very neoliberal about Chile. I mean, it's just like it's in Santiago, like people doing a bunch of gig jobs and going all over the place. And so it's a site of protest because, you know, that's where the city meets in a lot of ways, you know, it meets in these, uh, not veins, but kind of these arteries, these veins. And so taking it is powerfully symbolic and it didn't start as like to take it, but I mean, some of the videos are incredible. Just watching like 30 kids all run and they all like, uh, come on in, come on in. And they all jump over and they're just taking it. And like, fr- that's amazing. It was amazing. And the first couple of days you're like, oh, this is crazy. And then I was watching, I was like, Tuesday, the famous thing in Chile is esta cosa no prendió. Like it didn't light. Like, oh, the fair evasion isn't working. But then like later in the week, it started getting going. And I was just like watching it. I was working at home. And then on Friday, I'm like, oh, shit is getting like a little more serious. Like clips where they're like throwing tear gas into trains, but also like, awesome clips where like huge like workers and adults were joining more and more and like clips where like a hundred people like pushed down the gate and like all ran into the metro and stuff it's like pretty cool (laughs) i was like like whoa that's legit like that's real stuff you know and then and then you see in the night like holy shit like a bunch of shit in the city's burning like metro stations are burning and there's a lot of confusion too like the same you see oh who's starting these fires are the cops doing it they also burned a big, nothing happened to it, but the side of a big building that's, um, I think it's Italian-owned now, the, the 
the, the big energy company in Chile that they saw or Intel. Yeah, and so that and and then there were all the photos like piñeras in a fancy neighborhood having pizza, and then that's when they imposed martial law. And like, yeah, I went out the next day on Saturday, and yeah, there's just like casetolazos, like banging rocks on poles. You see like tanks like going by, and you're like, oh shit. Right. <laughs> and then that night is the same where they like impose curfew kind of out of nowhere, right? And then you're just martial law where you have military on the streets is kind of crazy. That Saturday, too, I went to see my friends who live by the military barracks, and so we were going home before curfew, and it's just like, oh, shit. It's Because our friends came, they went to buy alcohol or something, they came in, they're like, it's really bad outside. Like, And we're like, okay, we got to go. Because it's like in Recoleta, it's like a so-so neighborhood, and oh, man, there's like they're just like going by with their guns. Like, oh, it was scary, man. <laughs> you just like want to get home. Just like, ah. But then you just kind of bunker down. You come out and hit your spots. Like, I don't know, go to the street. Like, it was, I, I relate to watching what's going on in the U.S., like hearing people's reflections. It's just like this whole process you're going up through. Like, oh, that's kind of surreal. You're watching clips. You like see where you can go hit your spots. The sense of like solidarity, like, when you're on the streets and kind of seeing like who's your friend and who's not like there would be like big brigades of motorcycles going by like like just like the whole thing is really interesting one thing that i find kind of striking about it is similar to the moment that we're in in the united states right now both the moment in chile now but also you know pinochet coming in there is this colonial legacy that sort of forms both the cultural material for people to make sense of this kind of new policing but also literally the institutions that are kind of culturally symbolic like um the Carabineros? Yeah, Carabineros, yeah. That literally is a colonial institution. And I have to think that for, you know, people in in Chile who are and in Santiago who are being displaced into the outskirts of, of the city in this kind of hastily prepared temporary public housing, this is the site of a very distinctly racialized experience, uh, this, you know this kind of infrastructure that's being constructed. Oh, for sure, yeah. You have definitely uh, different registers of indigenous or mestizo that, yeah, are very racialized and, and push the outskirts. And that, yeah, the history of the police, I mean, in recent years, I would say you have, like, the students' struggles, but, like, the big side of police issues is in recent years been down in Araucania, I mean, with the Mapuche indigenous people, because there's a lot of fights over, like, land and they declared Mapuche like terror they made a terrorist law and like there'd be stuff where like trucks get burned down and shit and right. like under Bachelet and Piñera like no there, there was a couple years ago like a big state murder of a guy Camilo Catriyanka who had been actually in the school occupations I think of 2011 like a Mapuche fought they just like killed him on his tractor and they had like a very militarized down there and that's like I think it was like in 03 that's the origin of the police is like yeah like policing the Araucania, like, it's like repressing this colonialism, right? And and yeah, that takes on an urban form, but still is uh, very present, right? And even under someone like Allende, it's complicated. I mean, well, it's really complicated because part of when he was like starting to lose control was he let the police try to make sure there were not like weapons on people occupying factories and stuff, right. and there were like raids. But yeah, under Pinochet, oh my God, like. 
of course, the police are part of the military junta, right? I mean, you have the army, the navy, the the police, and a lot of these. Mm-hmm. You still have to this day, I mean, different police chiefs or different military people who are getting tried and convicted still, right? And the women's movement now, like the, the OCHAM, like the March 8th International Women's Day, they do like all year the Coordinadora Feminista. But they really emphasize in the protests, like the, the sexual abuse angle, right, too, as well, like. Of course, during Pinochet, you have police urban torture of right. female populations and lots of sexual abuse. Even actually, Michelle Bachelet, the former president, was she was tortured. Um, and that still registers today. So people try to draw out these connections, you know. It seems like to me, I'm trying to like wrap my head around the way this the Chilean uprising of 2019 links up to sort of what I guess we could call, which is still underway, but like the long deray of 2020, is to think about how neoliberalism came into being and then seems to be in a sort of period of rearticulation at the moment where things are perhaps up for grabs in different ways. And I think in the way that Will was speaking to, in the way, Natalie, you talked about the sort of racialization, spatially speaking of Santiago, is an interesting way to then think about how neoliberalism calls upon colonial histories, alters them, prioritizes different manifestations of colonialism in its reproduction and rearticulation of of social processes of production of policing of exclusion and how all of that seems to be coming to a head right now in different ways that speak to different specific historical sites of struggle in in the case of Chile right the the metro being one site for really challenging the particular articulations of oppression that manifest in Santiago throughout the 20th century and into the neoliberal turn, where in the U.S. we have the Black Lives Matter movement and the particular sites of police violence as the articulation that has sort of bubbled to the fore coming out of at least the first wave of the COVID crisis. And it's interesting because the way I'm trying to look at all of this and synthesize these processes, even though they're very different struggles, is to try and see them as struggles both for particular precious life and forms of life that people who have been killed, but also for a real challenge to the structure as a whole. But always, you know, metaphorically through the emphasis on particular violence that people are experiencing. And I was wondering if we could think about the way the metro in Chile has operated specifically as violence. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I think it's violence in uh, different ways. I think it's sort of the violence of the daily. Mm -hmm. Sort of just, you know, if you're at rush hour and you're coming from far away, just being really packed in, right? 
uh, going really far and then having to take like three other legs. And of course, all this falls on like the racialized underclass workers. I mean, like to get to the metro from like really rich neighborhoods, because actually, ironically, like the really, really rich neighborhoods, the metro doesn't go to because they don't want like the hoi polloi to just be able to like flood mm. in or whatever in their imaginary. So they have like nodes nearby where you have to get a bus from. And like coming back at rush hour, like those. I've been in some of those where I'm like, okay, I got to get a bus back to the metro. It's like, I've seen like four pass, like totally full. And you're like, fuck, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's like the violence of daily life. Right. And then also it's like for years, continually, like the price, the cost of living is always going up in Chile. And like, it's a privatized state court thing. Like there's austerity in the metro. Like they've recently had rounds of firings and like automate, like their new lines they've put in, which are kind of cool, but they like are more automized. Like they're trying to reduce the workforce always. Like even the, I think the union for the metro supported the fare evasions and stuff like against the police, interestingly. And, it's interesting, a station not far from me in Tobalaba, like, has a police station in the metro, like, in a major... <laughs> it's not like you can just, like, chill and have so much fun all the time on the metro. It's not, like, right. relaxing, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's not... There are... But at the same time, it is of the people, too, and it it is fun to people watch, and, like, you just kind of, like, put on your headphones, and it also is a site of, like, community. It, it does help you get around. It is, like useful in that way from certain so it's not just like all bad either so it's sort of like this is i forget there were some great chants that came out during like the fair evasions it seems to me like thinking with the metro as this site of transportation also in like the u.s context as also a site of, of violence when it comes to police brutality i mean obviously there's the nypd is pervasive in the metro and the, the history of broken windows policing speaks to this where where people jumping turnstiles are arrested and and these sorts of things and also like the killing of oscar grant in oakland by a bart police officer Mm -hmm. right a specific officer for the metro there's something in here in this conversation about space and movement and mobility and really the way freedom and struggles for freedom operates internally within societies as limiting colonially speaking like limiting people's freedom to have space and and move throughout cities and towns and really find access and find inclusion in social processes of not only production but as you're suggesting a sort of like communion of relation and of being able to people watch and, and all of these questions. Um, well, like, for, makes me think of two things. Like, one is, like, the romanticism people then have for when the buses were more chaotic, this neoliberal, like, where you take it in from kind of the bottom up, and it was that sense of, like, we can negotiate, I can go anywhere, and, you know, I have friends who are, you know, like, graffiteros or, uh, like, graffiti guys, and I'll say, like, what was the best time in your, like, doing graffitis? Like, oh, yeah, when I was on the old buses, and just, like... <laughs> just tagging buses, you know, and just like going around, getting on one bus to another. And and there was always more fare evasion on the buses, right? That's part of what's, there still is. I mean, there's differences between neighborhoods about like whether you can evade the bus fare, like in the fancier neighborhoods, they don't let you. Whereas actually in like some of the poor neighborhoods, the bus drivers will let you like evade fare. Depending though, like once, oh God, I I remember when I was on the bus and I had to yell at the driver because he like, they're like, 
uh, not as much history with having black people in Chile, and there's like a big Haitian immigration. That well, that's a whole other thing. But uh, that's kind of come after the 2010 earthquake. A lot of people were like going through Latin America, like because Ecuador mm-hmm. had open borders. It was the commodity boom, but that like what ended and it closed anyway. So you have a and he was like yelling at them so racially, just because I was like. You need to, like, not racially yell at these people after you kick them off the bus for trying to evade fares. Like, I know for a fact you're good. You just let on, like, five Chilean people who evaded fares. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, but the bus always had, like, a different, yeah, it's like this sense of community autonomy or ownership over the space of movement, which is also why, you know, when there can be issues with pollution, when too many people just have to end up getting cars a lot of times and traffic is always getting worse and worse. And it's just like, you can never keep up with the growth of the city, even when they try. And also like, for example, Bachelet like started a program for electric buses, which is going to be dope. But like, you only see the electric buses right now in better neighborhoods because the neoliberal constitution set up like very much like your community budget comes from like whatever tax base. And so like, there's like disparities of like 10 times the budget in different places. And so it's like, who can get the chi- I mean, it's a whole mess. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a, there's a joy. I mean, I feel so much love and joy for those. I mean, my early years here, there were times I would take like seven or eight trains a day, you know, and it's like part of, I don't know. What you're describing, that kind of dual reality where on the one hand, the bus becomes the bus and the train, right? The experience of not being able to afford the train, the experience of being forced onto the bus becomes part of the racialized experience that is publicly planned and publicly created and is essentially what the social infrastructure is for poor and indigenous people in Santiago. Um, But then on the other hand, this reality that you're speaking to, it is sort of an act of communion in that, you know, you're you are reminded of all of the other people in the city that you are interconnected with. It's so um, interesting and kind of calls back to something that Max and I talked about in the last episode. In this podcast, we tend to jump around between the humanities and heterodox economics and all kinds of things. And one of the things that we were talking about in the last episode was this idea in heterodox economics of the economy as an input-output structure that in a circular way at a macro level is reproducing itself. And what that means for all of these micro-sites of production, like you used the word arteries earlier, which I think is a great word for this. There's no bus route that would exist without the context of all of the other parts of the society's infrastructure, including the police, right? And so it's sort of this unavoidable reality where every site of production, every site of community is a site of communion with the rest of the society, both with the rest of the society in general, all of the good things that we can always pull from that because it is good to have communion with the rest of society, but also is inescapably linked to the fact that the society itself is provisioned through an ideology of racism and neoliberalism and all of these things. So these are also, you know, kind of local sites of policing. And literal police violence as well. And literal police violence. One of the things that I love so much about the framework of abolitionism in the United States, whether it's, you know, the original abolition movement connected inherently and intrinsically connected to radical reconstruction and to the reconfiguration of society as a whole and the expansion of reparations beyond just abolishing slavery to uh, society-wide reconstruction, abolition back then, abolition now of prisons, of police, 
of the military and prison industrial complex. What I love so much about that framing is that it opens up every other part of this input-output structure, right? And this kind of circular social infrastructure that we are all reproducing from different nodes and different arteries within. It calls into question all other parts of that, you know, because the the difference, I think, between Eight Can't Wait, you know, which is DeRay McKesson's, you know, kind of like eight reforms that we can do that will like, you know, solve policing by 72% or something. (laughs) (laughs) The difference between that and an abolitionist framework, right? That reformist framework, which says we're going to keep everything else the same, but replace police with social workers here. You know, an abolitionist framework begs the question, social workers and really all other parts of society exist right now in the context of police existing somewhere else. And they're working in tandem with police. And obviously, being a social worker is usually better than walking around with a gun and harassing poor people. But still, there are our infrastructure for social workers right now is the nonprofit industrial complex, mm-hmm. is this sector that is on this kind of market private money logic where everything must come from commerce and everything in the nonprofit sector must come from, you know, wealthy benefactors being altruistic. So you do have people who are social workers, you know, their quote unquote social work is harassing parents who are welfare recipients to see if they're like jumping through all the hoops that were designed in order to exclude them. And so the abolitionist framework opens up this critique of violence to all of the nodes and all of the arteries that are involved in reproducing the violence. Because in in some sense, there's violence committed when you're not able to afford to get on the metro in Santiago, you know, and you're forced onto an infrastructure that, you know, might be more dangerous or might, you know, take longer and prevent you from earning a living. Oh, and I should say, I mean dangerous in the sense of literally like bad infrastructure, not like in some kind of weird, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know. (laughs) Okay, like it's less now, but like Kata, my partner was telling me like, all every female friend she has has been like groped on like public transportation before. I mean, that's another thing that's like that can be a right. just like all types of violence, right? I mean, like and violence that's not necessarily like obviously equal in in any sort of flat or reductive sense, but the the sort of articulation of like nodes and scales of violence that ultimately like culminate in particular forms in the u.s of the open murder of black people in the streets right like the the way that these things are sort of scaled up throughout the different nodes of our society are related not reducible to to one another but to have a sort of like will suggesting a sort of abolitionist all at once sort of critique is to sort of i think articulate the way that each particular violence is sort of building towards these sort of outstanding sites of brazen murder that we see in the streets and i'm sure that we many that we also don't see right and to think about the reproduction system as a sort of not only like just a racialized system of violence and domination but a sort of total circular system of exclusion and violence as the mechanism as the drive as the driver for 
the production system. And I think there's no like there's no surprise that a metro itself is sort of like circular. It sort of tracks on the same path over and over and over and over again mm. as a spatial form. That is what this sort of logic of violence and policing is producing in our system at the moment. And it's it's one that needs to be abolished and not just simply like abolished in the sense of clearing it away, right? We obviously need to completely dismantle every single form of policing that we have. All the police departments, all the cops need to be fired. But that's not the same thing as thinking an abolitionist framework as one is that is transfer a transformational abolitionism. Mm-hmm. And I think that is crucial to the way we understand not only like the history of American abolitionism and how reconstruction becomes a crucial point historically in how that new system gets reified and how the systemic violence gets altered, but to also think about the way in which that total vision itself is one that calls for total transformation. And it's only through that total transformation that we'll actually be able to overcome the particular forms of egregious violence that have caused so much justified anger in our, you know, in our moment in in the U.S. and then also, you know, around the world. Yeah, for sure. This also, it reminds me then of the conversation that we're having in the United States about defunding police as a political demand. Because on the one hand, you have this abolitionist framework that does not want to stop at converting police into something else while imagining that other parts of the system can be addressed in isolation. Um, that, That the system right now can more or less stay the same if we just get rid of police. And we can talk about, you know, there's all kinds of ways that the logic of policing is reproduced in every site of production, what children learn in school, the language that we use, like, you know, all of these things, you know, like, what does it mean for police to exist in the first place? What does that imply about the rest of the society, right? Because no part of society exists in a vacuum. And certainly in the case of police, it is actually this kind of zero-sum logic of social provisioning and of there not being enough, not being enough jobs, not being enough food, not being enough space, figurative and literal, for people to exist in that is the context for policing as a job, right? Which is really, you know, the the kind of theoretical argument that that we're making on this podcast is that we are, as a society and as a totality, provisioning and planning for people to be unemployed. And so it's not this kind of like, there's a market and there's infrastructure and then everything outside of that is like the things that are outside of society. There is no outside of society. And that's the whole issue then when you naturalize unemployment As even the legacy of, I mean, not even, of course, the legacy of the New Deal in the United States did. You know, you start with a vision of production and an industrial vision that is based around, you know, a certain number of projects. 
And whether that's done through state planners or whether that's private planners and then we just kind of say that it's the market that decided it or whatever, the minute that we start detaching the things that we're producing from a commitment to include everybody or a recognition that we're including everybody and right now our form of inclusion is we're including them in you know a subhuman role where they can be shot by police, when we reify that limited productive vision then it becomes the basis for, you know, categories of like, who's disabled, who is skilled, who's unskilled, and basically who deserves a job and who doesn't, and who deserves the violence of police and who doesn't. You can't take converting police into social workers and just stopping there in isolation because that part of the infrastructure right now is premised on an infrastructure that excludes people in all of these other places, right? You know, another way of saying that is it has to be a framework of full employment and it has to be a framework of commitments, of legal commitments to inclusion. I mean, there's a reason that that is the framework that was chosen by the radical black left in the civil rights movement was economic rights, right to a job, right to housing, right to all of these things. Yeah, also, I just want to say like the Black Panthers as well, right? This isn't merely like, in some sense where some on the left will like criticize a sort of more center left civil rights movement for wanting rights in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. This is the Black Panthers. There's also been statements made by like the Crips and the Bloods in LA who came together to make statements about full employment in the past. And it's one that I think importantly and crucially situates the broad history of exclusion in our colonial modernity as a as an exclusive inclusion, right? As you were suggesting. And reframing it that way and then demanding an inclusion that affords space. A reckoning with the whole. A re- right, a reckoning with the whole, which... Which interestingly, and Natalie, I'd, I'd be interested to hear about this more. It seems like in Chile, these sorts of like relationships between the totality and particular sites of violence, whether it be martial law, police violence, or even like exclusion as exclusion from other forms of social infrastructure. Yeah. Would, is, it, is it your sense that people sort of understand the way in which the whole system is operating through these particular sites? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you were just when you were talking made me think of like the perfect example with jobs because like, so you have the student movement has like a long history. But you know, in the 80s, you have all of Chile very like hitting the streets against Pinochet, right? Just like, Lots of general strikes, lots of stuff. And, like, the Prisioneros was, like, the big uh, kind of protest rock band from the time they have a big, like, student anthem that's still, like, people with fires, like, still playing it today. I I had a a student who's, like, 16 who told me, like, they walked out of school singing the song, and it's called, uh, what is it, Pateando Piedras? Kicking Rocks. And it's about, like, going to university and, like, coming out of university and there's nothing for you to do. They don't have anything for you. And that's like a long uh, demand with student movements too, is like having these privatized universities and then going away in debt for like careers that don't exist. Right. Right. And then there's these student movements where they, they're the ones who write, who started the fair evasion. They've all year, like, you know, been dealing with the state in the schools and in the universities. And it is, it is about jobs too. Right. I mean, cause that's why that song really registers like kicking rocks. Like I don't have anything yeah. to employ me, even though I've tried to, I've done this degree and that's the desire, you know, like to be a part of the communion in some way or another. It's not a desire to kick rocks. 
not to say they want to be like working so much, but it it's a desire to be involved. And in, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, you're getting at something here because it's like the what ends up being the inclusion, like the process itself for marginalized communities and race, these like racialized communities are is the kicking rocks itself like that's the job right (laughs) Right? like that's the right like that's the austere form of employment that people are forced into just like now in the u.s dying in the streets being tear gassed is this form of austere employment that desperation and and abandonment is necessitating as like at the level of the social totality like that becomes the employment and i think that's a vision that really not only it's obviously deeply deeply angering and unsatisfying but it also provi- provides this sort of abolitionist path whereby we can think about different ways of employing of an employment relation right and different ways of people being afforded to employ themselves and i don't mean that in a neoliberal like gig economy sense but in the sense of like having democratic agency over the ways that they are employed in a system and it have it not be at the uh, on the other end of a of the barrel of a gun and i don't mean that figuratively uh, i'm right in a, in a literal sense and in in that way i think certainly things are coming to a head right now where the form of neoliberal employment that austerity has wrought and and the way it speaks to just and really carries with it this sort of the legacies of slavery and the legacies of colonial oppression are all coming to a head and which is not to say that there's any determined future out of this but that the system itself has has been laid bare in what it's doing and and now's the time where we can actually think about the way how we can press to to rearticulate this and then from there i wanted to also talk specifically about this defunding question and the defunding demand which is a crucial component i think and where we can begin to think about mmt and not just like mmt 101 right not just like this balance sheet approach where oh we cut spending on this and blah 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 and oh well we can afford to have police and we can afford to have new types of things like sure like whatever there's importance to being able to logically identify that but what we're talking about here with defunding is not moving resources around we're not talking about oh we're, we're taking police and we're giving them jobs to pick up trash like as the framing of this defunding is sort of an act of abundance right it's an active production of space as a sort of negative public affordance and so defunding and like completely dismantling police departments across the country is public spending right it's not public spending in a reified accounting balance sheet sense where you can track each dollar on this side of the balance sheet and track it on the other. Mm -hmm. This is the public spending on tranquility and public spending on space that then allows room for more democratic articulations of the whole and how we want to continue to mediate that space, right? But for starters, there needs to be a sort of negative mediation as the very first act. The first movement in all of this needs to be a sort of active public 
clearing of these violent nodes that have continually oppressed communities of color and and black communities throughout the the US and then also even further right like this needs to be a model and it's a model that is also learned from other struggles like in Chile for a complete rearticulation of the way we produce and reproduce the totality at all levels. That's beautiful. I was thinking like the, it's so funny, like I think in the US it's changed a little bit, but I think it used to be like, you know, you had to kind of like be an econ to like know about Milton Friedman and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like when I was first in Chile, people were like, oh yeah, Chicago boys, like, yeah, fuck them. Or like, or mm-hmm. making excuses, depends. But, right. <laughs> but, uh, but you like, even now you'll see a lot of graffiti that's like, ciao, ciao, Chicago boys. Like that's always like right there mm-hmm. in the thinking. And yeah, the totality, the totality, man. But <laughs> <laughs> the totality, man. <laughs> but people not in the U.S. No, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, the Chileans feel like, I feel like, yeah, like, it's not 2020, it's the long durée of 2019, yeah, like, yeah, it's been, like, because we, we were in curfew, like, a lot of people have been out of school here and, like, worked for a long time, <laughs> but that's a different issue, too, but then with, like, going into COVID, I mean, it is, like, a, an interesting time in terms of, like, you know, the totality has all these different elements, right, because there's all these horrible things, but then also, in ways, blessings like ability to be reflective or have a spit you know what i mean like within this horrible framework but then it's like thinking about how do you create those conditions in a different way you know that's actually really a good point as well like i think something really in the defamiliarization of a of a sort of distance and i and reflection that people were demanded to right at threats of violence right like you you know depending on where you were right like you you weren't allowed to to go out and that of course was racialized too right the curfew because of course it was i mean the curfew in chile again i forgot to mention that earlier i mean yeah for a lot of people that brings back very clear memories of the dictatorship like my my father-in-law like would talk about oh like my wife freaked out when like i came home drunk in the middle of the night once because like you never know if that's the poll if that's the state police you know like People for, like, decades had house parties all night till 5 or 6 a.m., right? My friends came to live with me during the whole thing because they, like, oh, they had a whole thing where, like, someone came in during the middle of the night, like, the first night of curfew. But, yeah, like, for a lot of people, there's also, and I'm in the U.S. as well, there's, like, repetition within these structures of violence that are... Yeah. The circularity of the violent system as a whole. We all experience different parts in every part of our lives. You know, we're never not interacting with institutions and with settings and locations and nodes or arteries or whatever you want to call them. None of these things are in isolation. They all exist in tandem with each other. And I think that what's what's so kind of interesting about what you both were talking about just now about both the quarantine and the curfew and the protests and the unrest, like, All of these things are transformations that kind of thematize the fact that we are always doing some mix of reproducing and transforming the the system at all different levels of agency and privilege and, you know, locations and, you know, these different nodes, you're here, you can do this, or you can make this decision that might transform that, you know, here, and that will have implications there. 
all of that, what Max was getting at earlier with, you know, rethinking the implications of this MMT framework is like, you know, yes, you know, these kind of balance sheet, you know, logic exercises are all, you know, helpful for realizing that we're not literally constrained by taxation or by borrowing or something like that in order to do something. But moving beyond that, we are always doing something. And that's the point, is that there's not this kind of like stasis. The system doesn't even reproduce itself without people who are located in positions of power making the decisions that cause investment, that cause production, that, you know, cause all of these things. We're always doing abolition, right? It, it now needs to be radicalized and really seized as a site of rearticulation and affirmation. Yeah, and abolition, like, when you abolish a law, mm. right, there's not a balance sheet of laws that just lost a number on it. You know, like, what, what that is, is it's a transformation. And we should be viewing transformation as kind of neutral in that way, right? It's a change, ultimately. And there's, yeah. you know, it's not taking laws away. And like, if we annulled enough of the laws, we would be in a state of nature with no mediation, right? That's not possible. The point is that there is no outside, even when you quote unquote annul, right? I want to go off one more riff on this because I actually found something that's oh, kind of interesting. Great, I'm going to cut everything I said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So abolition, right? The word itself etymologically is is structured through the ab, which is a, a, a sort of neglection, right? A, a sort of a off or away from. Mm -hmm. And then for the Latin adolere, which means to grow. Mm -hmm. And so it not only like in the simple sense is a, is a destruction of that which is growing, but of course, neglections themselves are dependent upon the root of a word. And in this sense, abolition is itself a regrowing, right? It's a neglection that is itself a ground for growth. And I think that is a, another way of articulating how we want to really get at and address this framework that we're sort of slowly starting to tease out on this podcast, which is that abolition in, as an, in an abolitionist framework is a simultaneous is the simultaneous destruction of particular modes of relation that are violent and murderous and brutally and just brutal, right? right? But it's also at the same time, the active production of, of a growing and a creation of other types of frameworks for relating and other employments of resources and other employments of faculties. And we shouldn't also talk down or, or neglect this sort of affective ways in which policing is a constant right? right whether it's self-policing or policing of others or just the fear that comes with every day walking outside particularly for black and brown people across the united states and, and then of course the world as well and so really to embrace abolition as this sort of process of creation i think is really crucial and really what we see playing out on the streets right now, right? It's not just this sort of wanton destruction that people try and paint it to. This is a call for recreation. That creation destruction is always mixed up in each other, right? Like it, yeah, in a protest, yeah. you maybe, I don't know, there's, they start doing the tear gas and then yeah, maybe it's fun if like a, 
uh, police cars on fire, right? That then creates excitement <laughs> and, <laughs> and that creates a yeah, new, no, that's true. Yeah. creates a new moment, right? Like the dynamics, uh, you know, it's symbolic. I mean, they burned down a precinct. I've never seen something like that in the U.S. That's yeah, insane. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, Truly, and yeah. it's like wow, cool. <laughs> yeah, and even setting aside whatever spending in the kind of reductive, you know, balance sheet sense. If we defund police, even if we don't even replace that on, you know, the state budget or whatever with something else, that is still creating something, right? Yeah. Cutting police is creating a bunch of people who aren't walking around with guns. <laughs> it's a transformation in and of itself that transcends this idea of spending good, defunding austerity bad, which of course is not something that most Marxists would say about policing, although <laughs> there was also a reading that I wanted to do from the Philadelphia Democratic Socialists of America chapter, which anyone who's as online as us, which you all are because you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> has seen at this point but it was just i just want to read part of this because the way that they frame it you know kind of gets at the limitations of seeing police in the same way that we see care even right it's a bit like the kind of reduction of care to what happens in the household in between the workday to reproduce the worker in order to go back to real production right this idea of police as violence hanging on the end of production rather than being infrastructure, right? Being bad infrastructure, being austere, violent, terrifying infrastructure. And so the Philly DSA statement said, the response to Floyd's killing must center on interventions that reckon with the roots of police violence. Nationally, we must fight for legislation such as the Workplace Democracy Act and a federal jobs guarantee. And then this is the this is the really bad part that got them pretty brutally ratioed on Twitter. <laughs> we cannot achieve economic and racial justice through budget cuts to law enforcement, police training programs, and community policing alone. Only by targeting the foundations of inequality can we create a more just society for all working people. And you know, I mean, at the manifest level, this is a cop-out refusing to back calls to defund police and, you know, sort of hedging on that really, really important question. But it also, I think, performs this exact problematic logic really kind of to a T, which is basically, instead of defunding police, we need to address the economic origins of police, right? Which sort of figures police as this kind of appendage that's i mean police are superstructure to them mm. almost right yeah like there's an economic base right in the way that care is superstructure and language is superstructure there are a bunch of floating signifiers that are bullets i mean like we can <laughs> to think like very critically semiotically about this like when we say superstructure like that's what's being articulated yeah like the police are just a bunch of floating autonomous signifiers that are chaotic and material that's the danger of, of the superstructure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that just is like mind boggling about this is the invocation of a federal jobs guarantee as instead of focusing on defunding police, right? As though, <laughs> as though having the public formally bottom line 
the inclusion of everybody in society, as if that does not automatically implicate defunding police and implicate policing as as a priority. And but then it's also it's just I mean, historically, it's just so offensive, you know, because the, the job guarantee as a demand in the United States came out of the civil rights movement. You know, but yeah, I just I just thought that kind of reification of infrastructure as purely economic and police being on the outside of it. It's so problematic. <laughs> well, that's the whole thing is they're making. Yeah, because they're trying to make it's like they try to couch it. But yeah, it's very it's totally that like, well, actually, like it's like if like <laughs> Martin Luther King like added like. Well, actually, it's jobs that matter. It's like the it's like they're trying to hide that tone, but it's like, geez, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's true. Jobs do matter, but like, yeah. <laughs> can you not? Well, actually, it. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'm just baffled by DSA sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> There's good stuff. There's good stuff. <laughs> but for, I mean, Philly. Well, I won't say anything too. <laughs> too too partisan. <laughs> I'm a guest. <laughs> Mirroring DSA structure, this is a big tent podcast. So yes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, thank you so much, Natalie, for coming on the show and uh look forward to doing this again. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to to learn from you guys. I mean, I, from first hearing your podcast, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is like a totally different point of view, but that intuitively makes sense. And I think I really like the the way you think in and out of and through a lot of different things. So it's a pleasure to, to be on and talk with you guys on the, on the radio. No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a great, a great pleasure to be yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we learn so much, I think, from talking to each other. You know, like this sequence of events, we talked to each other a bunch, did a podcast, and then you listened to us, and then you came on and we're talking to you, and hopefully someone else will come, you know, who's listened to the three of us talking. Like, that really is is how we met and how we came mm-hmm. upon this project, and I think it's always humbling, <laughs> you know, because we, we always are hearing from a totally different perspective that is analogically related to our perspective. And that, that process will never stop until we finish climbing the cascade and know everything. (laughs) (laughs) Climbing the cascade. (laughs) Until you become the sovereign will. Yeah. Until I become Nathan. Waited for the silence, so you need to unstick your 
Sliding stars. 